Welcome to the Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Thanks again for joining us. We have a great guest today and we have a really important topic to discuss. Um, so to start it out, I think that a good way to frame this is the idea that the world and kind of life in general is defined by the choices that we make. Um, you know, the decision to start exercising or eating healthy versus the decision to just sit on the couch and eat unhealthy food all day. Um, the choice of going to college or in our case, uh, medical school or not doing so and uh, doing whatever else comes your way, uh, your choice of friends, your choice of a life partner. Um, so much of your life is defined by choices. And if you were to take a thousand people in a room and ask them if they had a choice on how they were going to die at the end of their life, most people would probably say that they would want to die in some sort of a peaceful way, um, to not have pain at the end of their life, to to maybe die in their sleep, to be surrounded by their families with their affairs in order and the acceptance that they had lived uh, a fulfilling life, especially to the point where they could have fulfilled the the dreams and wishes that they had. Um, so today's conversation sort of centers around the ability to make that very choice. And um, we invite Dr. Anita Showalter on um, and we discuss physician-assisted suicide, which is a uh, a very contested discussion to have, not only in the public eye, but also in the medical field. Um, so we hope that you enjoy the conversation that we had. All right. Well, thanks again for coming. I'm so excited to have this conversation, even though it's not one of our, uh, our lighter conversations. Yeah, you know? that's for sure. <laughs> but um, it's definitely an important one, especially being in Washington and Washington being one of the, we just counted them out, one of the seven states and then Washington, D.C. that has this um, not necessarily worked into the laws, but it's allowed. And what we're discussing and the terminology of it is one thing that also comes into contention um, is physician-assisted suicide. And some people refer to it as physician-assisted death or physician-assisted dying. And there's various different uh, terminologies, but it all comes down to really the same argument. So joining us today, we have Dr. Anita Showalter. Uh, so again, thank you for coming on and joining us. My pleasure. So could you talk a bit about, you were just telling me about your recent visit with the AOA and your background in this field. Could you talk a bit about that to start off? Well, I got pulled into some of these ethical issues through my work with the American Osteopathic Association House of Delegates. Uh, first of all, I was on a task force last year to look at the osteopathic oath. The reason that came into question is because there are an increasing number of states that have physician-assisted suicide laws on the books. And um, it was actually our student delegation that asked that a task force be developed to look at the oath to see if the oath was um, needed to be updated as a result of these changes in the law. So um, the oath has a statement in it. I pull it up here. 
so I say it exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, I will give no drugs for deadly purposes to any person, though it be asked of me. So we had a task force that uh, convened over the period of a year and then sent recommendations to the AOA House of Delegates. Um, The task force actually voted to change that wording to, I will give no illegal drugs to any person, though it be asked of me. Mm. At the House of Delegates, that was voted down because they felt that that was not a professional standard that we wanted to uphold. So um, the oath, there were a couple minor edits uh, updating other terminology, but uh, that phrase was left alone because there was a strong feeling that um, our heritage as a profession was to uphold life and that this belonged in our oath. Yeah, there were. There's another part of the oath too. Even if you had changed that line to legal or illegal or however they wanted to word it, one of the main lines of the oath is, "I will be mindful always of my great responsibility to preserve the health and life of my patients." And if you're making that oath to preserve health and life, and then you start going into this field that we're discussing today, um, it seems like the oath has a lot more edits to be made than than just that single line about uh, deadly drugs. Yeah. That's very perceptive. In fact, uh, the American Medical Association also has in their code of ethics that physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose uh, serious societal risks. So... um, That also has come into question, and just this year, uh, there was a vote to uphold this language as well, Mm -hmm. that um, physicians are trained as healers. That makes us ill-equipped to advise someone that it is time for them to die. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. it's it's really... um... Kind of a strange thought. And when you think about a doctor, you think about a doctor, like you said, and the entire healing principle of the practice and to come from the opposite side of reaching a point where you could tell somebody that it's it's okay for them to pass away and that not only is it okay, but the you're going to assist in the process does seem to kind of be pushing against all the ideals that you've I've come to understand. And I think most people have come to understand. So In framing the argument, I was trying to just get the two sides of the argument down. Um, And basically what I came down to is your side, which I think boiled down to it, is kind of saying that treatment can be considered futile and no longer uh, a Mm -hmm. reason to continue treatment and kind of let the patient go on their own. But a patient can't be considered futile and no longer uh, viable to to live and terminated as treatment could. Um, And then the other side of it is kind of this argument that if people are in a a dire situation where there's really no hope, where they have a a terminal disease Mm -hmm. and they're not going to get better, they're only going to get worse, that they should have the ability to choose how they want to pass away and they shouldn't have to suffer and they shouldn't have to force their families to watch them suffer and become a form of themselves that they never were before. And I, each side of the argument certainly has uh, validity to it. And that's why this conversation is so important and why I was so excited that you were uh, in agreement to sit down with us and talk about it. 
Yeah. So um, definitely our advances in medical science has brought this issue to a forefront because uh, we know that people are kept alive longer than they would have without our intervention. And um, because we live longer, we're also more likely to acquire those um, diseases that uh, are more lingering, like cancer, uh, which is uh, a primary thing that these laws are aimed toward. I think everybody agrees that we don't want patients to suffer. I think everybody agrees that a patient should not be forced to undergo treatment that they do not want, and that's the principle of patient autonomy. And um, I'd like to go ahead and read from the American Medical Association Code of Medical Ethics where they go on to state, instead of engaging in assisted suicide, physicians must aggressively respond to the needs of patients at the end of life. Physicians A should not abandon a patient once it is determined that cure is impossible. B, must respect patient autonomy. C, must provide good communication and emotional support. And D, must provide appropriate comfort care and adequate pain control. A lot of people are afraid of pain and suffering. Of course, suffering can be physical. Suffering can also be emotional. We have the means to deal with physical pain much better than we do the emotional suffering that can go along with a chronic disease. But um, there is a push in end-of-life care to give appropriate amounts of medication so that patients can be comfortable until the end of their natural life and um, to make sure that we have specialists in those fields, uh, palliative care, so that uh, physicians are well-versed in these medications and um, are given the authority to give appropriate amounts of them so suffering is minimized. The majority of patients that initially request physician-assisted suicide will withdraw that request once they find out that their physician's not going to abandon them, that they're going to be kept on comfort care, that everything is going to be done to ease that passage from this life to the next with the support of their family and those that are important to them. Mm. So as we get into this conversation, I want to provide a bit of background on it. Um, first of all, just speaking in the states where uh, physician-assisted suicide is permitted, I guess you can't say legal because, in, as you said, in Montana, it's mm -hmm. not necessarily in the laws, but it's not against the law either. Um, so currently, it's uh, legal in Oregon, Montana, Washington, uh, Vermont, Hawaii, California, Colorado, and Washington, D.C. And it's also, um, as of March 2018, those are the latest numbers I could pull up, uh, human euthanasia was legal in the Netherlands, Belgium, Colombia, Luxembourg, Canada, and India. And assisted suicide was legal in Switzerland, Germany, South Korea, Japan, and some of the United States, uh, states that we've mentioned already. Um, again, this is a, a topic that the American public and the medical profession across the country is kind of divided on. Um, and just kind of digging into the reasons for those divides, what are some of the, the arguments that you've heard in your time with the AOA, uh, maybe on either side of the, the, the spectrum here, that are the ones that stand out to you the most? Well, uh, first of all, patient autonomy is something that we respect. 
And um, the question comes up, if a patient is asking for this, if they have weighed their options, then should should the physician not go along with it once you have a patient fully informed of their options that says, no, I'm done, I want to end my life, and I would like you to give me the prescription to do that in a humane and, um, well, what would be considered a humane manner. There are many situations where physicians have to decide uh, whether or not we go along with a patient request. And first and foremost, we take the oath saying that we will, we will be mindful of our patients to do the very best for them. In the Hippocratic Oath, uh, there's the concept of do no harm, mm-hmm. uh, and that's also reflected in the Osteopathic Oath. So we have to decide um, with our knowledge of medicine and with the process that the patient is going through, are we potentially doing harm by by going along with the patient request? Well, in this case, we're talking about ending a human life. And my big concern in the states where, uh, and the countries in which physician-assisted suicide has been legalized, we actually make two classes of citizens. We have citizens where physicians are required to provide assistance if they ask for suicide or threaten suicide, we have to take out all stops to help that patient see a value in their life and help them change their mind. In the state of Washington, uh, every physician has to do six hours of suicide prevention training because uh, the state recognizes that the physician has an important role in helping people who no longer want to live. Should that status change because you now got a terminal diagnosis? And the way the laws are written, you don't have to have failed a treatment. You don't have to be in your last days of suffering. You only have to have a terminal diagnosis with an estimated six months or less to live. Now, if you ask physicians, and if they're honest, they'll tell you it's very difficult to determine that timing. Mm We're often very wrong mm-hmm. on both ends. We'll predict that somebody has um, months or, or years to live and they pass away shortly, or we uh, predict they'll be gone in a month or two and they live for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So anybody in that category that we say with our very imperfect science only has six months to live would then qualify for somebody to write a lethal prescription for them. And, um, and that seems to me short-sighted on the part of the loss to begin with and also impossible to predict. But it also means if you live in a state that has that law, you know when you receive your diagnosis that your life is no longer held to the same value as your neighbor who has not received a terminal diagnosis because the state protects your neighbor but no longer protects you against mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many of the problems in trying to figure out, to be honest, when I was coming into it, I didn't have a, a side of the argument that I was really committed to. I, um, but there are so many problems that come along with that. And with mm-hmm. the idea that the side that's arguing for physician-assisted suicide is really arguing for freedom of choice and autonomy. Correct. And 
at the end of the day, it's still um, some sort of an authority figure who's deciding whether or not you fit into the category that they've declared uh, mm -hmm. fitting for the assisted suicide, right? Um, which kind of fights against the entire idea of freedom in the first place and really complicates things. Well, and I think that like in terms of freedom of choice, you're technically the patient has the choice of ending their own life, but then you're putting the physician in this really weird place where they don't have a choice. I mean, maybe they do. I don't know exactly how, <laughs> how it works, but I mean, but you're kind of putting them in that, in that position where, um, now they're having to make a choice to end your life when that's not something that they've ever, um, you know, that's not why they became a doctor. <laughs> no. It was to save people, not to, you know, end people's lives. And so it kind of takes away their freedom, I think a little bit. Yeah. And um, there have been, while all the laws are written that a physician does not have to participate at this time, mm -hmm. there have been uh, physicians in the United States that have been sanctioned for refusing to refer for physician-assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. So um, what becomes an option originally, if it ever becomes considered a patient right, then the physician has an obligation mm -hmm. to assist. And when you're talking about life and death, that does put that physician, just like you said, in a very precarious position as having joined this profession because of honoring and upholding life and then um, facing sanction for not participating on some level, because a referral is participation. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's secondhand, but it still is. And uh, that's another concern about the slippery slope, that if uh, this takes hold and the public decides everybody should have this right, then uh, the physician has an obligation to participate. And also then which patients have an obligation to participate. Mm -hmm. uh, so the right to die can become the obligation to die. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at the reports from the states who are tracking reasons that uh, patients have chosen physician-assisted suicide, and Oregon has the longest track record of uh, these reports in the United States since they were the first state to enact the law, the majority uh, cite uh, fear of being a burden to their family, fear of loss of autonomy, um, and pain is way down on the list. The, the physical suffering, which is the thing that motivates a lot of um, the public to be in support, is way down on the list of reasons people actually choose physician-assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. And that tells me that there's some uh, psychological uh, concerns in play that were not intended. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing again, um, and this is working our way out of the United States to our neighbors in Canada. Um, one thing that's in the, it's legal across Canada, uh, the entire country. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing that's in the description that I'd seen in Canada was the idea that patients experiencing unbearable suffering at the end of life have a right to seek a compassionate death with the assistance of a doctor. And again, that kind of brought up a lot of questions more than it did answers because the term unbearable suffering is, uh, who's to define what <laughs> unbearable not easily suffering defined. is. Yeah. Yeah. And in Canada, there have been physicians, uh, that, um, 
have been sanctioned for, again, not participating because it is considered a right there. And um, the physician, as an agent of the state, then has an obligation to participate. So before we continue again, I think that it's important to kind of define um, the terms that we're speaking in here. So physician-assisted suicide and uh, mm -hmm. terms like euthanasia and the difference between those. Um, so in my uh, gathering information for this, I came across uh, something called the choice model, which offers nine options at the end of life and through care. Um, and I had taken those down. So I'll just read through them because it helped certainly with my understanding of what the options are at the end of life and how the, they differentiate between uh, physician-assisted suicide or uh, palliative sedation and things of that nature. So uh, the first one on the list was all available measures. And that's basically anything to keep a patient alive as long as possible, whatever, whatever can help and whatever is necessary, no matter how invasive it may be, um, they can agree to that. Uh, the second one was limited interventions, so that's less invasive measures, so minor surgeries, maybe medications to help uh, sustain their life. Um, number three was comfort care only, which is when medication is used to keep the patient comfortable, but nothing more. So they're not working to extend the patient's life, but they're simply keeping them comfortable in their potentially last days. Um, four was the option of no care. And that's already an option for everybody. And I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, when we're talking about this, we're not saying that uh, people shouldn't have the right to choose when they don't want care, because that's already a right. You can refuse service and you can define the terms of what sort of treatments you receive at any point, And that's exactly. legal across the entire country. Correct. So I think that that's another important uh, distinction to make. Um, number five was voluntary stopping eating and drinking or uh, VSED. And that's pretty self-explanatory, but um, understandably pretty hard to watch and brutal. Yes. And that's basically somebody starving themselves or uh, not drinking and dehydrating, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, a t I can imagine, a terrible way, not only for that person to go out, but for their family to see them mm -hmm. suffer in those last days must be horrible. Um, number six was palliative sedation, which uh, medication is used to sedate a person until they pass away. And that sedation, you would probably have more of an understanding of it, but I would imagine that it's basically putting the person to almost to sleep. Um, is that correct? And in fact, uh, you can do what's called terminal anesthesia. If someone is in intractable pain and medications um, are not keeping the pain under control, you can actually use anesthesia to keep them under control, but let the body um, wind down mm -hmm. and pass away without the active intervention uh, to hasten that process. And is that legal across the country as yes. well? Okay. Um, and then number seven was what we're speaking about today, uh, which they had defined as physician aid and dying or PAD. Um, and they defined that as patients with a terminal diagnosis, a prognosis of six months or less to live, who are com uh, competent and clearly and consistently communicate their wishes are given a prescription, which they then self-administer. So they take whatever the drug is themselves, and they do it at a time of their choosing when they still have the, mm -hmm. the ability to do that. Um, number eight is euthanasia. And these are the two that I kind of got mixed up quite a bit in uh, just the research of it. But euthanasia is similar to that, but the doctor administers the lethal drug. Um, and that is not legal in in the United States, but it's been practiced for a really long time in the Netherlands. Okay. Um, 
So those are typically patients who can't administer the drugs themselves, correct? So they kind of reach a point where they don't have the the autonomy or the physical ability to... Either they can't or they just choose it's easier to have the physician do it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they're... We talked a little bit about the slippery slope before, mm -hmm. and um, this is where the slippery slope can really come into play because um, human beings are notorious for changing their minds. Mm -hmm. And what, um, what can look like a good route of escape at the last minute can um, not look so, so much like what you want. Mm -hmm. But if you have contracted with a physician to give you an injection, then you have another person in play and their motivation and their timing um, that uh, would make it harder for a person to, at the last minute, change their mind if the drug's now starting to go in. Mm -hmm. If you were injecting it yourself, you'd stop. Mm -hmm. If somebody else is injecting it for you, it's too late. Yeah, especially... I imagine something would come into play there where you wouldn't have uh, the the mental capacity to be able Correct. to make that decision, and they could say, "Well, this they made the decision back when they were more stable, and now they're right. at a point where they're not." And so, yeah, that's a terrifying thought, really. Very terrifying. And, and then uh, the final uh, option here, which uh, speaking of terrifying, um, is suicide. Which suicide is across the board illegal for physicians to even suggest in any form to patients. So even if you have a patient with a, a terminal illness who's suffering, at no point a physician can say it might be better if you. We can't help you with uh, the death process, but it might be better if you take care of it on your own. That's that's off the board. So. Um, I'm going to come back to the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. I recently overheard a person who works with people who have a lot of mental illness and uh, stressors. And I had made the comment that um, my concern about physician-assisted suicide includes a slippery slope, that once you open the door that uh, it's okay for people to take their lives in given circumstances, even if they're very defined, you can always think of another one that, well, maybe we should consider it here as well. So a person that would be in capacity of helping to talk people out of suicide or screening them for thinking about suicide said, in this patient's case, it might be their best option. And I went, oh my goodness, here it is. Mm -hmm. Here's the slippery slope. You start with this very narrow group of people that, well, everybody can understand in this case. And then, then your thoughts broaden to, well, if it's okay here, then why wouldn't it be okay here? Mm. And, and, then, uh, and that's exactly what's happened in the Le Netherlands too. Um, the last time I had done a little research on it, there was a there was legislation being proposed um, that anybody who is suffering physically or mentally can request suicide. And so um, again, you instead of making the focus helping people to see the value in every life, we start to decide, well, well, which ones are okay to let go? Mm -hmm. And we are 
ill-equipped as human beings or as physicians to make those kinds of choices or even advise patients in those kinds of processes. Mm-hmm. So across the states where it's legal, and again, we brought this up before our conversation started, but uh, PNWU has a five-state region, and oddly enough, three of mm-hmm. our five states are states in which it's legal. Um, what are some of the common, sort of, I guess you could say, accepted uh, diagnoses where they say that this uh, physician-assisted suicide is something that can be considered? I, I imagine um, diseases like ALS. and yes. So ALS and cancer are the most frequently um, listed diagnoses for um, request for physician-assisted suicide. Um, anything that is terminal uh, can be considered, but uh, somebody has some physician has to be willing to say, we think this person has six months or less to live before they would qualify under the state statutes. Mm-hmm. Now, what sort of problems does that bring up? Uh, with ALS, I'm uh, I'm from Massachusetts originally, and mm-hmm. we had the, the ice bucket challenge sort of took the country by storm a few years ago. And it was started uh, by Pete Frades, who's a Massachusetts native, I believe. Um, and I think he had one of those diagnoses where it was similar to yours, where he had a very short span that he was expected to live. And I, I'm almost 100% sure he's still around today. And (laughs) through his efforts and through the outreach that he's created, they've raised so much money towards research and they've been able to uh, kind of make some headway in in at least trying to figure out how to cure this this problem. But if you start saying that people with ALS, my fear was that if they have this diagnosis where they might have six months, but again, could live much longer or much shorter or whatever the case may be, um, that there might not be as much of a push for research and for things like the ice bucket challenge when it's not in the public eye of these people suffering and not having any sort of option. And that sounds like a horrible way to put it, but I think that it's undeniable that if there are people who are suffering and you're looking to cure that suffering, then there's much more of an effort to try to find a cure and to raise money for it. And if the option is there when that disease comes in, that it can kind of just move towards physician-assisted suicide. It might, again, it's the slippery slope idea where it could take away from funding and it could take away from the research that could potentially be going into saving people's lives well down the line. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle on it. And uh, we know that ALS is um, a very difficult disease. There's, there's a number of very, very difficult diseases where people do suffer. Um, Our philosophy as physicians has been to help patients accept whatever hand they're dealt and then um, see the value in their life and make the most of every moment that they have to share with those that are important to them. I think that applies to anybody. It doesn't matter what the disease is. So I would hope, again, the focus could be on finding the cures and on valuing each human life as long as that life is with us. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, just digging back into that slippery slope idea and jumping again across our borders and over to the Netherlands, which you've mentioned, um, one case that jumped out to me, which uh, I had to take it down because I was just kind of blown away by it, was the... um, 
the growing number of people who are eligible for euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. And there was this one case of um, a sex abuse survivor in the Netherlands who uh, was abused from the ages of 5 to 15 years old, and she suffered from PTSD, um, anorexia, chronic depression, and hallucinations. And uh, so in what I read and what I copied down from the news articles, um, it said, despite improvements in her mental state after intensive therapy, doctors believed her multiple conditions were incurable and agreed to her wish to end her life. Uh, the doctors judged her to be totally competent and there was no major depression or other mood disorder, which was affecting her thinking. And she was allowed to take part in euthanasia. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine that if you open it up to that level, one of the quotes again from the news article was, it serves to reinforce why any move towards legalizing assisted suicide or assisted dying is so dangerous. Yes. Um, there had been a firm line drawn that physicians are the healers, the supporters of life, uh, the assisters in health, in health, and um, and when you cross that line, then where is the other line? Where where's the line you stop at? And uh, even the line of six months with a terminal diagnosis is soft. We can't predict that. So we've already made a soft endpoint for how far will we go? And whenever you have a soft endpoint that's easily moved to the mm. next place. And uh, just like in they said, as was stated in the AMA um, ethics statement, is this is dangerous for society. And, uh, oh, I might not have. Yes, I did read that. Physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose serious societal risks. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of risks we're talking about. Is, is um, the counselor might imagine, well, maybe this patient would fit this category. Maybe this patient shouldn't live anymore. And uh, when those people put in the place to assist are now considering maybe it's time to just let go, then what hope is there for those that are really suffering the most? Mm -hmm. Another case that I had uh, pulled, and this is one that has an argument for the opposite side, um, and it's almost hard to argue against, was a man who had Huntington's disease. Um, and he described it as feeling like the wheels were coming off of his bus. And he started having involuntary jerking motions. He was unable to walk. He had difficulty speaking and communicating with his family. And Huntington's disease um, is a hereditary disease. And his father had suffered from the same disease. And he had watched mm -hmm. him die. And he was terrified of dying the way that his father did. Um, and the article talked about his father dying strapped down to a hospital bed. And he was mentally vacant. And he couldn't communicate. And he was entirely reliant on other people for his care. And this man just wanted uh, to avoid that for not only himself, but for his family. And it comes back to the idea of pain potentially being way down on the list of things that he didn't want to happen. But physician assisted death or suicide wasn't permitted where he was. Mm -hmm. So uh, he had gone home with his wife and they had come to the agreement that he didn't want to 
suffer the way that his father had suffered. He didn't want his family to experience that. And he was going to take his own life. And he decided to do it um, by overdosing on uh, prescription pills of some sort. And his wife, uh, who he was with for years, left the house that day for fear of being implicated in his death. And he committed suicide. And still after his death, she was involved in a four-month homicide investigation for being involved some way. And I, I don't think that anything ever came of it. But the process of losing your husband to something so horrible and then to also be accused of playing a part in his death is a, is a terrible thing to think about. And to think that the only options that he had available were to go home and do that or to suffer the way that his father did um, is it's a, it's a place where you can see the other side of the argument really come to, to full color. Yeah. And it's, it's those kinds of stories that push the narrative. Um, the, I would like to say with good palliative care that his situation at the end of his life would have been much better than his father's was. And um, I, I can't speak as an expert on Huntington's, uh, although we, you know, we know that it's a horrible disease and that the people that have it have seen family members go through it. So um, they're very knowledgeable on, on how things look at the end. Even so, um, we come to those same questions. What is our attitude towards life? And what is our commitment to assist people in those very, very difficult times? And um, as someone who has sat with people who are in their last days and who has witnessed uh, the different varieties of situations in which people take their last breath, we can't predict what it is when the person lets go of their spirit but there are so many stories of, that physicians can tell or others that have been involved in palliative care that it's a very personal thing and it happens when everything is right for the person to have it happen. Mm -hmm. We can't know what those things are that have to take place before that person's life reaches its natural end. And we are walking a dangerous plank if we decide that we have that capability. And again, I'll say, as physicians, we should be looking to help that individual see the value even in the suffering that they're going through, that their life is still valuable, that they still have impact of some sort, even when, and I have seen this, with somebody in a coma, that it would, it would um, appear that they would have no control of when the last breath happened, but there would be some family situation until everything was lined up. The last breath didn't happen, even though it was predicted days or weeks earlier. Mm. 
So how do we know? And, and how can we say we should help? Mm-hmm. It's, it's beyond our capability. Yeah. One thing um, that I think both sides could agree on, and this is kind of a crossroads in the argument, is the idea of wanting to avoid uh, what you could coin needless suffering from yes, a patient. Absolutely. Um, and needless suffering, um, just treatments or just even the person being alive and being in agony and their life being prolonged, um, the patient not really being a recognizable form of themselves. And then their families, again, with that list of reasons why people would uh, side with this, um, just not wanting to have to put your family through the experience of seeing you suffer needlessly with, with no hope on the horizon and Mm -hmm. really no cure, you know, coming and just things getting worse. Um, so that's again, where the opposite side of the coin and the opposite argument, uh, really does have some legs and you can start to understand it, but it's just, it's really hard to see because it's, there's so much fog in between the, the thoughts. Yes. Yeah. And, and there again, we need those experts in palliative care that um, have worked with enough patients to be able to predict what's going to help in this situation and what's not going to help. We need the hospice care that provides support and knowledge for the family so that they, um, they can be comfortable with the care that their loved one is getting. And um, we definitely need to be better at all of those things so that we can meet the patient's needs. And if we do that well, then the numbers of patients that feel pushed into a corner that they must get out of are going to be very, very small. Mm. And looking back, I just happened to look back down at the quotes from the osteopathic oath that I had, and I had underlined the word life um, because I felt like this conversation in defining what life is and defining what living is, of course, there's the, the medical explanation and there's the biological side to it, but there's also... Um, like a philo- philosophical question mm-hmm. of what living is and what life yes. is. And I think that that's a major part of this conversation as well, because whether or not you're alive in a hospital bed in a vegetative state with your family not really recognizing you for who you've been your whole life, is that really living or is it existing? Is is it worth maintaining a, a life when it comes to that point? And, you know, so it's sort of uh, playing devil's advocate here. But again, I don't really have a side on either end of the argument because you can see the the strengths and the weaknesses of each really. Right. Um, Part of the slippery slope we need to be very careful of if we assign value to that, quote, vegetative life is how do we define that? Mm -hmm. So um, in some of the ethics readings I've been doing recently, Uh, There was a case of a gentleman who was uh, able to get around in a wheelchair, but had limited mental capacity and um, therefore limited thought ability, but could function. I mean, he was a a functioning human body, um, could interact with others but in a court situation was deemed to be a vegetable because of his intellectual capability. So when you talk about a vegetative state, that's a definition. Mm -hmm. And um, depending on your philosophy, 
of what life is valuable and what life is not, then um, we can get ourselves into big trouble with that definition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's similar to a lot of the definitions and a lot of the the arguments that could be made on either side when you take one word or one thought of what yes. defines, uh, you know, suffering and what defines pain and what defines, um, again, the prognosis. And it's it's hard to come to a conclusion because it's there's so much uncertainty in the end of life care. Yes. And that's where I, I would um, advise staying on the safest ground that you can get on <laughs> mm -hmm. when when talking about these decisions. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you talk about definitions of death, you know, there's very defined um, criteria about brain death, for example. Uh, we know the brain can die and the heart can still beat, but that's very defined. Mm. Uh, we know if a heart stops beating... And, um, and there's no assistance to correct that very quickly, the brain will also die. Uh, but we know that the brain can die and the heart still beat. But, but that's a defined thing that, um, that we can come to agreement on. When you talk about vegetative state, but you've got a brain that's still functional, you've got a heart that's still beating, that's a human being that's still alive mm -hmm. in my book. And um, to make a valued judgment on that human life then begins a slippery slope that many of the atrocities in the world have started on is defining which human lives should be protected and which human lives are dispensable. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to, again, definitions, things like unbearable pain and being able to define what that is is very relative and exactly it's it's difficult to reach a, a consensus either and if you agree with the person that you're speaking to on the argument it's it's hard mm -hmm. to say unbearable pain is this because it's not easily defined and I don't know if it's capable of being defined right because the pain is the personal experience that only the person can know who's experiencing it mm -hmm. so with physician-assisted suicide being um, legal in seven states now in Washington, D.C., and in so many countries uh, across the world, um, and as a, a physician yourself and um, working at a medical school and, you know, having the connection to the AOA that you have, um, what's your outlook on the future? Are you, are you afraid that it's going to spread? Do you think that it's going to start backtracking and going uh, in the opposite direction? Uh, what do you think for the the future of physician-assisted suicide? That's a really good question. Um, I know right now my colleagues uh, stand pretty united that uh, their role is healers and uh, that this is not an area that they will participate in or encourage. I think... We need to continue the discussion on what is our opinion about human life. I think we need to be honest with ourselves about uh, those hard lines that we might draw and what happens. Uh, we've got plenty of historical information to show us what happens when you draw a soft line. Mm 
Uh, as human beings, we have great capacity for rationalization. We have great capacity to imagine if, if uh, once we cross the line, if this is good, then that must be also. If that's good, then why not this? And that's exactly what we've seen in the Netherlands uh, with their longer history of uh, both physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, it happened during World War II in the Nazi regime. You had classes of people that were no longer protected that were um, deemed dispensable. Mm -hmm. Boy, we hope we never find that line again. But what's to stop us from getting there once we cross the first one? So um, I'm hoping that just as you're reading, showed you some of these cases that you that you say, boy, let's not go there. Mm -hmm. That as we get more experience with this, we'll say, wait a minute, is this really the path we want to be on? And um, I'm proud of my colleagues that have said, um, I was actually on the task force of the end of life policies um, committee um, and we wrote a policy that included the term physician-assisted death. And my osteopathic colleagues said, we're not even going there. And the work that we did as a committee over the course of a year was thrown in the trash can. Um, but I was okay with that because I was glad that they were willing to take a stand. And um, it brings out these issues that need discussion, that we need honest conversation with we need honest conversation with our patients what where where are you hurting physically emotionally how can i help you how can i, I how can i help gather those supports around you so that you feel comfortable that your needs are going to be met and i can't take away all of your suffering but i can minimize a lot of it and i'm going to do my best to partner with you toward that end that's what people want to hear. And not that everybody's needs are met that way, but the vast, vast majority are. And then, and then we need to think about the consequences of opening the door to say lives in these situations do not be, need to be protected as these lives over here.